Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with two friends and very special guests, uh, Aiden Senkin of Felicis and Beezer Clarkson of Sapphire. Uh, Beezer, Aiden, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having us, Eric. Yeah, it's super to be here. Thank you. Welcome back, Beezer. Re- repeat guest. Uh, uh, and we're excited to, to begin a series on, on open LP topics. So, so first I want to get into the Operator Angel Nano Fund movement. Uh, we're seeing a lot of uh, people who were previously scouts or previously angels raise small you know, three to five million dollar funds. Uh, Aiden, let, let's start with you. I'm curious, why is this happening? We're, and we're also starting to see VCs fund these these uh, these operator angels, nano funds seed them, uh, VCs become LPs. Why is this happening? And and how does it compare to when you were started beginning the, the micro fund movement in the, in the mid to late uh, 2000s? Yeah, I mean, I think two interesting perspectives. So number one, we are actually part of this movement. We have backed a bunch of uh, really interesting operator angels, some at a larger scale and some at a smaller or you might call nano scale. I mean, that's the level I started at. So it's kind of like, uh, I think, a good analogy to what's happening today that we're now calling that nano you know, when I started, I think the interesting aspect was, look, angel investing has been here for quite a while, probably for many decades. I think, you know, the, the time I started around 2006 to 2010, when I think the movement picked up more steam and, you know, small uh, seed rounds became much more effective and companies didn't need a lot of capital. And also it was a time where a lot of exits were happening with Facebook and Google buying a lot of companies. So I think it was a very interesting time that there were not as many professionalized, institutionalized angels uh, or doing that at large scale. Hence the first uh, depiction of this concept of of a super angel, uh, which I was very proud and excited to be part of. And then that movement spawned then formal funds, including ours and couple others that were part of that and then became kind of a new breed of firms and a lot of us still around today and have done really great and maybe we'll touch on that in terms of scaling uh, with institutional backing. Today, I think there is also this aspect where obviously starting and scaling companies have been, you know, on the one hand, very exciting and you see a ton of people doing it, but I think it's also much more challenging it, the signal to noise ratio is you know much more uh, much tougher, and so what's happening is people really value you know act, active angels and I think we're we're seeing that kind of trend uh, come back in vogue again, and some of these efforts we we are huge fans of, especially for us, this has been really effective in areas where we don't necessarily have great domain expertise, and we always think about we're still a small team as a venture firm. And how can we be larger than life, larger than our size? And one thing that we found is handpick some of these efforts like, you know, Brianne Kimmel's Work Life Fund or Melon Yen's Operator Collective. Some of these efforts are, I think, really unique, uh, extremely valuable and, you know, kind of have great moats. And we are very excited to back them in a very large way. Do you worry if they become your competitors? We don't really worry about competitors that much, to be honest with you. For us, it's all about, you know, we, we, the, the, the thing that is more important than anything else to us as a firm, the number one core value we have is learning and adapting rapidly. You know, growth mindset is our true north. So for us, it's actually pretty symbiotic. You know, we're, we are now, our latest fund is 300 million in size. And, you know, these funds are anywhere from five to 50 million. I hope they become really successful I don't think it's a zero-sum game necessarily. That's one of the reasons why we're excited because the same thing that makes these angel operators and funds successful, their modes are different than what makes us successful. And that's why we think it's a great symbiotic relationship. If anything, you know, we want them to be successful and you know, we want to be part of their journey. Totally. And, and last question for you, Aiden, and then I want to hear Beezer's take on, on, the, on, on this topic is, is what happens to these funds in, in fund, fund three? You know, all these operator angel funds, are they going to have to consolidate? Are, are, are all of them going to go pro in the way that you, Clavier, and, and all your others have gone pro? Or was there a series of super angels and micro funds that just died and, and we didn't see it along the way? 
right now, the main reason we are doing this, we have several reasons. So for instance, we are seeing uh, kind of a new breed of enterprise SaaS companies. We are very actively investing in infrastructure, DevOps, and cybersecurity. And one of the interesting things we're seeing is there is splinters, two two kind of groups of splinters, one from firms that have grown very large. And these people want to go back to the origins and want to practice like and lead seed rounds. Um, And then there's also operators that have been investing their own money and want to scale that up and maybe do that more scalably. And, you know, Brianne and Melon are good examples of that. First of all, we think they have a unique place in the ecosystem. I think they're going to keep finding great companies. And if they are successful, then I think a lot of great options will be available to them. And on the other hand, I think the other thing that we're also proud of, quite a few of those that we back, like Brianne Kimmel or Malin Yen, I mean, we talk about diversity in the ecosystem and important people. We just kind of think that these voices need to be amplified. And they need all the backing they can get, like operator collective. Like when you look at the uh, women executives that are involved in that, I mean, oh my God, like we want that kind of a group to be extremely successful. We want them in as many of our deals as possible, let alone also be a large LP uh, in them. So I think we're very excited to support them. And I think, you know, I am optimistic about what's ahead for them. Obviously, if they're successful, they'll have many options to choose from. And in terms of what's ahead, I think they're going to get into great companies. I think the bigger question is, 10 years ago, what was interesting is there was a lot of like small M&A activity. And for the most part today, a lot of the exit activity, and this is where I would love to hear from Beezer as well, it's now mostly IPOs, direct listings, and large-scale M&A. And you can still see smaller M&A too, but far and far, you know, they're far and few in between. So the only thing is markups are really great. Being in great companies is also really nice. Uh, But at some point, obviously, exits also need to materialize. And that's something that kind of regularly has been in short supply and venture. So, 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 Biza, let's pass it to you. What do you make of the operator angel uh, phenomenon? How do you, you know, five years from now, if we're back on the podcast, or what are we talking about? What was its significance? Uh, And and then why don't you comment on uh, on the exit question that uh, and point that Ada just made? You know, it's interesting. I was making a list. Well, uh, of all the different versions that we've seen. And, you know, one of the first funds we did, Series A fund, back when you could be a $75 million Series A fund in 2012, and that was considered a reasonable, like, you know, you could go to market with that size. That was actually a fund, too, of a GP who had started life with only being VC-backed. Like, their first fund was sort of what you'd call now, like, a pilot fund. Um, and it was $5 million and if it wasn't all from one VC, then the gross majority of that fund was underwritten by a VC. And I presume they somehow passed that, they somehow did that out of their fund. It wasn't um, individuals, it wasn't individual GPs. So as far back as 2012, at least, we have personally interacted and done that. But what I would say has happened a lot more in the last, I don't know, I haven't put a pen to paper on this, but I'd say 12 months is exactly what you guys are talking about, which is we're seeing more and more folks get started in business not, as you said, as a scout program, but as a small fund, sometimes it's fully backed by one VC. Sometimes it's a collection of individual GPs coming together to, I think, individual GPs meeting out of their own pocketbook. So it's not going through a fund structure. It's not going through, it wouldn't be like going through Felicis. It would be like you, I didn't doing it personally. Um, so we're seeing that. We're seeing in the last, I would say, three or four months, um, we've definitely seen people, venture firms putting together business practices around this. Now, I was just talking to, and this is in the Europe as well. I was actually just talking to a large fund in Europe who has, I don't know, 20 LP stakes as part of their venture fund commitments. So I assume they've wrapped those up into LLCs, like individual companies, but like, you know, it's really getting creative. And I just want to underscore what you said about diversity. It is Getting into venture is not a meritocracy as much as we'd like to believe that it is. I mean, you have to have access to people with money, which is just not true for everyone. And so I just think anything that also creates more opportunities for more people to find ways of getting their foot in the door is great. And this seems like another opportunity. Um, Granted, everyone doesn't know every venture capitalist, but it just just continues to do it. And the ability to write, there's another US-based fund I know that does this. They write, you know, 100K checks into 20 or 30 funds. And the funds have to be five million or less. So you can do small tickets, there's bigger tickets. We are co-invested in two funds that have checks of five to ten million from two different venture firms in them. And the rest of the LPs are your run-of-the-mill institutional endowments, foundations, asset managers, sapphire, 
I know all that just to give a range of like what's happening right now in the market, which is really exciting. Um, I think that sort of diversity of thought and diversity of, of structure gives for room for a lot of innovation. So that's my yay. I think that's all looking good statement. Do you want to talk about the exits? Because yes. We would like more. We're with you. Um, we haven't seen as many. Uh, it feels a little bit like the whole acquire world that kind of gave some people some soft early landings for companies. It's not that it's gone. It's just quieter. We see this in front in the ability to recycle quickly. Like there's there's small outcomes that you can allow you to recycle, but it's not the staying private longer arc in startups seems to be somehow and maybe it's the staying private longer coupled with the abundance of capital in the market means we are not seeing a lot, we're not seeing a the number of acquis hires or small internal tuck-ins or whatever the right language is for a small small exit. And we're also not seeing a lot of loss ratios that one would think would be relevant if you're taking the amount of risk that people are taking. And I think it's all kind of coupled with the availability of capital and being able to write notes and extend runways. And on one hand, that's great because companies keep having at-bats. And on the other hand, you are not seeing some of the early recycling opportunities that is helpful from a portfolio construction standpoint. I wanted to add two uh, two threads, um, two angles that I think are interesting. One is, and this is I think important to the longevity and success of these funds. Um, so the two that you know I mentioned that we are lead investors. One is Work Life Fund, uh, and the other one is Operator Collective. Uh, the interesting thing that I'm seeing, the thing that helped me originally, is that the angel investments that I ended up making allowed me to also establish relationship with founders that today at Felices with institutional backing, we have so many founders that we back more than once. Some of them, one of them, I think up to five times. So, you know, one of the biggest values in this industry is obviously your track record. But the second one is, you know, maybe even as valuable as the first is a network. So one of the things that we're seeing is that, you know, these angel operator angels have great relationship with founders. In, in most cases, these founders are also LPs in the fund. So those relationships, you know, you can almost take to the bank and they're, you know, they cannot be bought. And so I think that's really valuable. It's a very deep mode. And then, you know, we are looking for a unique angle. And again, this is something for Beezer to comment because there are just so many micro funds and a real differentiation is so hard to come by. But in the case of Brienne, you know, she has SAS school. And I think that's a great differentiation. In the case of Operator Collective, it's an amazing network of the most senior and most established uh, women tech executives and other executives. So to be able to have access to such a group, let alone from a sourcing perspective, as well as scaling perspective, uh, we've just never seen a group like that assembled. So it was almost a no, no brainer. Um, and then the last thing that I'm going to add that is not talked about anywhere else. One of the reasons we are able to do this is because we have our amazing partner, Katie uh, Reister, who came, us and came to us and joined us from SVB Capital. And before that, she was uh, at Cambridge Associates. So having somebody that is very experienced, that kind of evaluated funds before, she was on the other side of the table, you know, when we were first fundraising and first was an LP in Felicis, having somebody like that lead that from, for us is also great in terms of scaling and making sure that it's going to be successful and it's not just a random effort. And it is very carefully targeted and planned around all the areas we want to expand on. And we feel that either, you know, we would like to kind of uh, build up the, the founder relationships that we don't yet today have or, you know, industrial or special expertise that we might not yet have. So it's very complementary and symbiotic to how we operate. So we are very excited to see how it's going to go. Totally. I think that's great. Can I ask you a question, Aiden? Yes, absolutely. When you looked at doing this kind of program, did you also consider doing scouts or a scout fund? And how does one choose between those options? Because we we also see that happening, right, in the industry. And we have some of our funds that you scout, some don't. And I'm just always curious what the decision-making criteria is, like when when do you choose which option? Yeah, I think that's a really great question. I mean, we did think about the scout program. There are quite a few VC firms that are doing it. Overall, we spend a lot of time talking to people that are doing it, as well as the founders that are in it. And to be honest with you, the, the comments and the feedback were so mixed. And there were so many more, I don't want to use the word complain, but there were so many more comments on people that are like trying to figure out how to make it better than people saying, this is awesome. Versus, you know, I feel backing these uh, operator angels is a little bit more of a pure effort. 
It's very specific. And I think another reason why we're really excited about it is historically, it was a great point of success for us. Like we've done that a couple of times, like we backed uh, a group in New York, we backed a group in, you know, uh, specializes in hardware companies. And I think each one of these efforts has resulted in at least one, if not more companies that ended up being kind of one of our pivotal companies in, in those respective portfolios. One of the things that I'm proud of is when we do things, we run it as an experiment, we get the data, and when it succeeds, we scale it. So for us, you know, one of the reasons why we are bullish on it is because we didn't want to copy and paste just to do what other venture funds do. And we thought we can do it very selectively, programmatically, with a very deliberate focus. And we've seen multiple success cases, and that gave us then encouragement to go do it and, and scale it up. Well, brilliant as always. Um, and I, Katie's great. We love her. Um, and I also, I, you guys are pretty unique in having someone from the IRLP side being dedicated to doing this. I think I might be grossly generalizing, but I feel like anecdotally, everyone else I see doing it's coming out of the GP side, which I'm sure has its own advantages as well. But um, as a fellow LP, I appreciate having the LP insight. One of the things we didn't cover is why would the operator angels want to work with somebody like Felicis. And the interesting thing is, one of the things that we're enjoying is we're also like enjoying sharing strategy with them. It's kind of like giving it back and paying it forward. But the second thing is, this LP perspective is really important to them. Like, for instance, something that I had to learn the hard way and still like having Katie is really amazing. But I really appreciate Beezer's comment because people forget that this is a two-sided marketplace. Surely we're all about success in finding the world's most you know, awesome founders, but we cannot also forget about LPs. And I think a lot of funds uh, see the LP side as, oh yeah, like we just need to collect the check so that we can get back to action. I think one of the things that allow us to hopefully be a long-term franchise is to really respect and appreciate the LP side of things. And having Katie on our side and having a representative from the LP side has been really, really, I think, important factor in our success um, and in our great relationship with the LPs. And I think it is also now a great factor on how we're scaling, you know, our involvement with operator angels. And I think they really appreciate that perspective. And of course you should talk to them and invite them on the show, but it has been a great factor in um, them appreciating our involvement. Yeah. I, I didn't, you, you mentioned you look for VCs with moats. I'm curious how, how broadly you, you think about moats in venture, because to me, I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not, I sometimes question whether whether there is moats beyond sort of the brands of, of the individual partners that that make up the firm. And when when I look at you know the great firms that came out of your era, Floodgate, Felicis, uh, you know, Uncork, uh, First Round, uh, etc. I don't I don't see it. They're all fantastic firms doing and have done fantastically. But I don't see like true differentiation the way we would think about you know company moats. The only one I see is sort of YC with. What I see in terms of pricing power, I'm curious how you think about what moats mean beyond what I'm talking about, or if you mean something else when you use the word moats in venture capital. Yeah, I mean, I can I can touch on it on the Felicis side, and also on what we're looking for people that we're investing that are operator angels. I think from the Felicis side, one of the biggest moats was um, our strategy. Our second core value is being unconventional. So one of the things that I started, and I'm sure Beezer can comment on this. There's a lot of orthodoxy in venture. I mean, all the firms try to act like every, everyone else. And, you know, unfortunately, this is an industry where a lot of success gets aggregated at the top few. And you cannot be successful in just copying and pasting. Now, the kind of things that we try to do are very difficult. And a lot of times people have to have faith, you know. So one of the things that we try to do is do things that most other people are either uncomfortable or maybe it's much more difficult to execute, like investing across many geographies, many sectors, and also um, across stages, and then combining, for instance, one of the things that is unique about us is we combine um, frontier and investing and investing in areas like health with investing in areas like consumer and enterprise, which is not practiced very often, and if so, in multiple family, families. So we think that that has been an important mode. And then the second mode is just doing something that is meaningful and original. Like I think that's why I wanted to we, we think that this is really, really, really important, especially in this day and age of what happened to WeWork, what happened to uh, Uber with the CEOs. What we think is, look, you know, bees are on the LP side and us on the GP side. We're expecting, you know, extraordinary growth from these companies and it takes a huge toll on the founders. 
And what should happen is we basically should invest in the growth of these founders and, you know, healthy scaling of these companies, not growth at all costs. So that's one of the reasons why we're doing it. And we're spending the money out of our pocket because we're also asking these founders to be scrappy. So they don't want to invest in themselves. But I think that early leadership coaching and leadership guidance is so critical to get the company on a good front. That's why we're doing it. And then the other thing that is important is we also voted uh, we also committed to voting our shares with the founders and we're not doing this to be cute, but the reason why we're doing it so we can have God honest conversations and talk about the hard things. So that's really, really important for us. Uh, and then in terms of the modes, I already touched on it, but I will touch again. Founder relationships are great modes, but also something that is really unique that is not easily replicable. And, and again, I mentioned like SaaS school has been so effective for Brienne that now even with YC, I think she gets you know special access to all the enterprise companies in YC. With Operator Collective, they have such an amazing community of women executives that a lot of companies are very interested in having access to that amazing group. And I just don't see that being replicated anywhere else. And so there are other approaches, but I think those are two really great examples of modes that we think are more than transient that I think are there to stay. Beezer, how do you think about moats in venture capital? I'm trying to think what to add. I agree with, uh, don't just need to sit here and say, yes, that's so smart. But yes, that is also smart. Um, in some respects, I think uh, what's old is new again, right? That the, the reason why people are gravitating back to the power of individual relationships, either GP to entrepreneur or entrepreneur to firm, is because there's authentic, that, that implies there's some authenticity there. And I think that's what I hear underlying what Aiden is talking is that if if you figure out who you are as an investor and how you want to be, like, that by definition is unique. And it's actually really hard. So I think we as LPs gravitate to folks who have sort of figured out who they are and what they want to do and how that gets expressed. And by usually if people follow that thread and that's linked to a certain you know, network they're part of or entrepreneurs are looking for, the power of that authenticity sort of pulls through. Um, it doesn't mean to say they're guaranteed sourcing and allocation from the entrepreneurs and all that stuff. Like, it's, you know, it's still hard, but that creates a moat, which doesn't mean to say there isn't a role for some firms where I almost think of it as like the employee venture capitalist. And I know that seems like a weird construct, but there's some firms where there's just a lot of people and it may have started out with a little bit of a different flavor when it was smaller, but as it's grown, it has to institutionalize almost the way some of the bigger banks do, which, and they're great and they provide capital and that's just a different way of being in market. But I don't know if you have the same sort of founder conviction feeling the same way as like, you know, Felicis is still very imbued with. Yeah. I, don't, I don't know if that makes sense, but we've just been observing that in the market today. And I don't know, we always think if you know why you're doing what you're doing, it's really hard to fake that. And that resonates with LPs and it resonates with entrepreneurs and hopefully you've picked the right market area to go after with the entrepreneurs that, re- that connect, right? How should we think about uh, whether whether or not there's too much capital in the ecosystem? Like, What's the right framework to think about that? And how should we think about whether it's distributed in too few hands or, or, or too few you know, venture capitalists or, or firms versus uh, you know, sufficiently spread out? I.e., do we need more venture capital or more venture capitalists? Well, globally, probably the answer is easily yes, because there's still a whole bunch of geographies where ventures outside the, within the U.S. and then outside the U.S. where venture is still very nascent because the industry doesn't have, you know, the right economic laws, the right tax laws, all those things that help uh, create the right ecosystem. It's harder to say if you just, I'm kind of, uh, this is a little bit of a, I guess maybe I'm punting a bit, but it's harder to say an absolutely yes or no on any of these because it is all relative. And if there's enough, Money in the ecosystem is a relative question depending on where you are. Like the Bay Area feels like there's a lot of capital, but I'm sure there's still some entrepreneurs who feel that they're being missed by the system because it's not as inclusive as one would like it to be. Yeah, no, no, totally. Broadly, question for, for both of you, I'm curious how we think, you know, if we're in this podcast, five, you know, 2025, uh, talking about the VC ecosystem and talking about the LP ecosystem, how we think it's, uh, it's going to evolve and change in the next five to 10 years. And, and one sort of, broad sort of framework I'll put out there is it seems that, you know, there's, there's capital and then there are founders. And it seems what technology does o- over time is eliminate or, or reduce middlemen. And I'm curious, you know, there, there are a few middlemen, there's, there's VCs, of course, and then there's, there's sort of fund of funds. Um, uh, you know, one example for is, is um, why do fund of funds exist in the capacity that they do, i.e. isn't Iden or Mike Maples or whoever 
better at determining the next best Iden or Mike Maples than a fund of funds? I'm I'm curious. Uh, maybe Beezer, you, you can you can take that one. But but either of you feel free to answer the, the whatever rings true for you for the broader question. Well, I mean, I don't know if Aiden wants to spend all his time doing LP investments, right? I mean, he might be a fantastic direct investor and LP, but some people are. It's just a question of what kind of business do you want to run, right? The fund of fund business, I have no idea how big it is, but it, uh, you know, we're, we're technically not a fund of funds, right? We have an evergreen structure and we don't fundraise from endowments and foundations and all those things that make people a fund of funds. So um, I just say that because I'm not super well-versed in the size of the market, but let's just assume it's billions of dollars because why not? Like, I don't know if that's the world someone else wants to do. It's a whole business structure that one has to decide to live into um, to do that, which is not necessarily the same. And VCs could try to do both. I just think that people will want to focus. My, my general experience with venture is that it's usually people focus at some main level about what their firm's going to do. Because if you don't, then you end up building a much bigger firm and there's just different experiences of being in a larger firm versus a smaller firm. And I don't know, Aiden, what do you think? Are you going to become a dual LPGP? No, no. I think (laughs) there are are two distinctly separate functions. And I want to clarify because one thing that I want to give credit is, you know, the very first LP that wrote a check for us, WeatherGage, it was a fund of funds. And the same way we were trying to be an outsider venture fund for having our first start, in the industry, uh, they were starting as a small fund of funds only focused on people that came from the super angel world. And I will always remember my first check. I will always have respect for the LPs. I think what people forget is the function that fund of funds serve is an important one where the thing that is not clear from the outside, and this is the reason why we have an LP representative for relationship management, is that there is a lot of entities that deserve venture-like returns, but would not have access to that unless they're at a certain scale. If you're an endowment and you have $10 billion, you have enough surplus capital to put into PE and VC, and then that is scale enough that you can you know, have direct access to some of the best managers. And even then, it's relationship-based, but at least you know, there is enough scale for there to be a big enough team so that they can actually invest in those relationships and evaluation of those managers and will be seasoned enough. But imagine you're a small endowment, which we're very proud to have in our LP mix. It could be uh, a minority-based college. It could be like a small little uh, endowment somewhere. And they just don't have the resources to be able to invest. uh, And they don't have significant enough capital or meaningful enough capital to be able to get into the best funds. And if they cannot get into those, they cannot get venture returns. And yet being able to get venture returns is also really critical to those endowments that are 100 times smaller than the ones that are most well-known. And so one of the reasons why fund of funds are important is they basically serve this great function of aggregating smaller institutions, other entities that might have the capital but not have the expertise. So I don't really see that function going away completely. Now, there might be consolidation. Um, there are obviously some groups, and Beezer is extremely uh, strategic and you know a figure that we always look up to. So I think there will always be a few of those that are really great in relationship management and have access to the best managers. The reason why we are doing it at a very small scale is because it's a perfect complement to our strategy. We're not going to do it on industrial scale. The reason why we're doing it, because we want to be coaches, we want to basically groom uh, the next generation of angels that might one day become VCs uh, just to pay it forward in the ecosystem. I actually really enjoy uh, sharing strategic insights. And also these people have earned their own relationships that, you know, we are not going to go like build from scratch and have expertise in areas that are complementary and sometimes you know, our ability to learn from them as much as their ability to learn from us. So the function we serve is completely different than the functions that fund of funds serve. So I don't think it's a zero-sum game. I think both will continue to exist, but I just wanted to add that clarification. That was a great clarification. Thank you. Um, I agree with you. I think this always sounds like I'm just championing other LPs, and I do admit I'm obviously biased, having chosen to have a career at being an LP, but I think the fund of funds play a really wonderful role in the ecosystem. And quite often when we're working with a new emerging manager, while the, the, the fund of funds are in there too, and it's their, their, one of their wonderful roles in venture is to get in there early and help support emerging managers before everyone else on the institutional LP crew has decided to come in because they're, they're set up to take that risk. And a lot of the larger checks associated with some of those larger entities 
in risk mentoring just aren't necessarily looking to take that risk. That's not what they're set up to do. So I feel like without fund of funds, emerging managers would have a much harder time. And emerging managers are also a very important part of the ecosystem. So we're, we're fans. What's your, your biggest prediction for how the VC ecosystem or the LP ecosystem might evolve or, or look materially different in the next five to 10 years? I think the VC ecosystem is changing a lot and the way firms operate is changing a lot. So I think this kind of idea of a moat uh, in terms of a brand or something that is differentiated is becoming harder and harder to cut kind of through the through the noise. Signal to noise ratio, I think, has really uh, changed drastically. So, you know, I think one of the things that we need to remember that I don't see it changing anytime soon. While I'm so excited about a huge number of new companies and startups being created, what we have seen, at least in my tenure, is 14 years, uh, four years as an angel investor and 10 years as a GP, is that the number of interesting and meaningful companies is increasing by a very conservative amount. Uh, but the number of startups has probably increased by 10 to 100x, which is really great. Um, the only reason I'm mentioning that is it become that much more challenging to pick those companies. And on the LP side, you know, one thing that we've seen in this kind of interesting environment that I don't know if historically we've ever seen, uh, I don't have that information, but this kind of very low interest rate environment where there is just so much liquidity and people look around and obviously venture stands out and they're like, we cannot not have access to that. You know, it was, I think, a more limited group and how fast and how much that group has expanded on the LP side has been one of the biggest surprises in the last decade for me. I don't see that changing anytime soon unless there is a huge monetary contraction. So I think that's going to continue going on. And basically what that means is that the more capital there is, you know, we're always like talking about the industry and there are so many interesting data points and Beezer always has the best data. So I would love for her to chime in. But, you know, I've seen some 2009 data points where you look at round sizes, valuations and funds, like things have basically tripled. So there is the official inflation figures, then there is kind of the VC ecosystem. And when you look at it, you know, a lot of surplus capital has a downstream impact of rounds getting bigger, funds getting bigger, uh, valuations increasing a lot. It's going to make it challenging. And it's in an environment where signal to noise is getting more challenging too. That doesn't mean that it's going to be impossible to find great companies. There will always be those and there will, I think, be venture returns. It's just kind of an interesting trend. I'm very curious where it's going to go. I'm, I'm not going to go like make a prediction. I'm just observing it and capturing it here. Uh, Beezer, please chime in. Oh, I wish I had a working crystal ball. <laughs> it would be really interesting to know with definitiveness what's going to happen. I think we think there could be two disparate potentials. And there's one that falls exactly down the track that Aiden was talking about, which is this pace is the new normal. And it is a fast pace. It is a ton of noise. It's really hard to pull the signal. Um, I think LPs and growth funds um, will start using more data because I see that coming up in our newer um, early managers of heavy use of data to help parse noise and signal. And it's happening at the growth funds. But I, I think you have to sort of essentially rewire how a lot of the established funds work. And so i I would assume that will continue. Um, same thing on the LP side. All of this, we'll just all have to learn how to work at a different pace, uh, which some days is exciting. Some days sounds tiring, to be honest. I do think we have a potential for just real congestion because to Aiden's point, there's a whole bunch of new LPs coming into the market. I, I think there will be some that decide they want to take a bunch of early risk both on newer managers and also going into the earlier stages of venture, there's a lot that's still sort of hovering around the larger, like I want to write, you know, 30 to 50 to hundred million dollar checks into established quote unquote established names, whatever that definition is for themselves. And that ends up in a different part of the ecosystem than say the angel operator funds that we were talking about. And, and, but at some point to the, bringing it back to the beginning conversation we had, if the exits aren't there, then everybody gets stuffed up. So I think the market will need to figure that way out. There is the potentially way less happier five years from now if we do hit some really big speed bump and the interest rates change and some of those underlying drivers change. And I think there is, we could see what's happened in the past, which is a whole bunch of money will leave the ecosystem really quickly for a bunch of reasons, because LPs all have their different drivers for where they can put other money and what the their risk reward appetites are. And 
for some of the endowments and found, some of the endowments and foundations and other folks that have other needs for their dollars. They have liquidity hurdles they have to keep. So all this thing can come to play, and that's why in the past you'd see some very fast changes. So that's sort of the not so happy potential five years from now, and we're just preparing for both. I, I don't know how you know, right? St- standing here today in February of 2020, I don't know. Either one could be true. It feels unlikely we'll go back to some sort of medium pace, and I don't, I don't know why I feel that way, but it just feels like that would be unlikely given all the innovation and the pace of change that's going on today. Like I don't know why we just medium size the soda, but maybe. That was. I think I just covered all the bases possible. I'm sorry. That'd be great. That's great. Could you imagine your LPPers being more excited about alternative types of vehicles, i.e., sort of is Atomic, you know, paving the way for a, you know a whole new wave of studios to come out, or or might LP prefer GPs to have different types of portfolio construction, or or how could that evolve in terms of what LPs are are looking to to invest in? I think there's a chunk of LPs that are excited about new models and you'll see that because they fund them. I think there's a whole bunch that want to wait and see. Um, Keep in mind, and I realize I'm painting an extraordinarily broad brush, so forgive me for this, but a lot of LPs are, are responsible for preserving capital and growing it, but they're not there to take wild risk, right? So you want to have some upside potential, but they're it's really bad if they lose a lot of money, right? Like if this is somebody's pension or if this is, you know, tuition or things like that, like there's a certain risk tolerance that just is innate in the position of what they're trying to do with the capital. And so I think some of the newer models just have to sort of become a bit more mainstreamed and then they'll see a lot more capital be available in the beginning days. It'll just be for a different chunk of the LP base. But as I had mentioned, there's a lot of folks being LPs now. So there's a whole bunch of opportunity. Yeah. It's my take that, that, you know, regulations prop up every, you know, Every industry and, and VC is, is no different in, in some pers- uh, respects, and I, those respects are the credit investor. Uh, you know, you need to be a millionaire or, or make a certain salary in order to, to invest. You know, general solicitation, i.e., you need to be you know well connected. You can't you can't advertise. Lim- limitations on cap tables, and then GP vesting, which means it's really hard to to leave and, and join another firm um, or or start start your own if, if you're already down a path. Are, do you sympathize with the idea that those regulations hold back? a lot more investors get, getting into the industry? And do you think there's any chance that, that those things might change? Aiden, do you have a view on this? I feel, I, I'm wondering if that's what holds people back or if it's things that are a bit more prosaic, like pulling money together for a GP commit or even getting the exposure to understand what venture capital is because it's, it's not caught, taught in college, right? You still have to go figure it out. I mean, I'm just trying to think how to comment on it because there is already a lot of capital and we're already seeing a lot of family and friend rounds, even globally. Like I just remember like some of the craziest investments we made, you know, like I remember like we invested in Rovio and that whole round was bigger than our fund. But the whole reason the company existed, it had 49 failures. And if the founder's dad didn't step in and, you know, help the company, the the company wouldn't have been afloat by then. And so... The reality is, look, it is a game that is slanted towards capital. And I'm going to be very honest, like, you know, I barely started in venture industry. And if it wasn't for the fact that I was lucky at Google and was an early employee and had my own personal capital to deploy, like VCs didn't employ me. To this day, I still have a chip on my shoulder and I will always have it. And that that is part of where my hustle comes, comes from. If it wasn't for my own personal capital, I wouldn't have had a start. Um, so in that sense, I think there is part of me that really wants this to be broader and more demographic. Everybody should have a chance. Also, the, the subtle detail here is that people forget that, you know, they only look at successes and think, oh, this is like land of riches. It's not. It's actually very risky. And for the most cases, capital is lost. I mean, the loss ratio has been coming down. But for the average person, you kind of need to write that off, which means that this needs to be almost dispensable capital, meaning that it needs to be almost completely discretionary. And I think the problem is with, with people that are bare, barely making things, you know, month to month, barely making rent. Um, it's very difficult. There are two huge problems. Number one, there is going to be unfortunately a reverse access problem that they're not going to get into like the best companies and it's going to be very difficult for that to happen. The second thing is those people are probably also those that are most, you know, uh, can ill afford, you know, those, those efforts. Um, that's one of the reasons why in our LP mix, one of the things that we really pay attention to 
Um, we have a lot of institutions that have charitable causes where they're not necessarily making vent- access to venture capital broader, but they're taking the gains and investing in uh, charitable causes, which for us is very important because everybody wants to have impact. And maybe a certain number of our companies have impact, but the way that we are trying to achieve that is also by very carefully curating and selecting our LPs, where we're always asking, well, if we're really successful and you make a lot of returns, where will those returns go? Where will it have impact? And that's something that I think is really important is not covered um, on the LP side. Like, for instance, I think close to half of our CIOs and our LPs are managed by women. Um, we have a lot of like underrepresented minorities and uh, other efforts uh, in our LP base. And we proactively go seek those. A lot of them don't even know we exist. And, you know, they, they didn't even hear about us before. But we always make a point that they're represented in our mix. So one way we're trying to, uh, I don't know, I don't want to call it like righting the wrong, but having a positive impact at least on our side, which we feel is our responsibility, is the curation of our LP base. And that's how we're trying to somehow give back or somehow, you know, uh, contribute uh, to that imbalance out there. One question I want to ask you, there's this take I heard basically says that uh, high valuations and early stage venture um, are partially because of sort of a lack of great founders, i.e., uh, you know, pr- high prices signifies the scarcity of something. Typically, usually when you raise prices, you, you get more supply. Uh, uh, and and the w- one speculation as to why we're not getting more, more great founders is that it's still too risky to, to be a founder. Uh, and, and one of the reasons why we're seeing a surge in popularity among VCs is that VCs have portfolio diversification. Basically, VCs are diversified, founders are not. And so the implication there is, could you get bring some founder diversification either by encouraging more scouting or encouraging you know, some version of founder pooling. I'm curious if you think, one, more great founders uh, would uh, cause valuations to, to lower. I, I use there, is there some sympathy in, in that claim? And then two, what you think about uh, the idea that founders aren't diversified, VCs are, and should founders be a little diversified, not so much that they you know, de- uh, you know, uh, don't have their eggs in, materially in, in one basket, but so that there's some uh, safety net there for them. How do you think about that? Maybe easier, I'll start with you. Yeah, it's uh, an interesting question. I'm struggling. Well, I'm, I'm bouncing in my head that, that, yes, I feel like people should all have, no one should be left out alone in the cold, right? And so the reason of having a portfolio is that it allows you to sort of manage your risk. At the same time, if you're running a company, I don't, I just don't know as an N of one, how much I could manage to do running a company, investing, running a firm, you know, running a venture fund. Like, I don't know where the human brain just still needs to get something done. And if I'm assuming you're talking about CEOs when you say founders, right? If you've got a CEO of a company who's doing many other things as well as the running of a company, it does that set that company up for success. And what is the obligation and responsibility there? And and that's what I'm juggling in my head. And so I'm going to punt and say, Aiden, what do you think? Like if your, if your CEOs come to you and say, I'm doing these three, four things, how do you experience that? And maybe there's some individuals who can do all that and some well, potentially can't. And, and to be clear in the framing of the question, they're still, you know, 99.9% spending their time running company is just investing in their friends. You know, like I use scout investing, but, but, but and not- the point is to make sure they have other money coming in, sort of like give them some diversified uh, financial exposure. Yep. I mean, sure. But there's, and there are, uh, I mean, it's, I agree having people, people should be, well, let me just say this. I feel like the ecosystem in general, it does not provide enough financial information. I felt that coming up in school, I feel that as an LP and that if you're a CEO of a firm, you should absolutely understand finance, but maybe you're a product person. And so someone has to help explain that for you personally, as well as for the firm, right? And what are the different risks and rewards and how are you invested? And that might mean being a scout is a great investment, or maybe, and I'm not a financial planner, but maybe you should be in bonds and have something super non-risky to counterbalance it. I have no idea, but I'm saying is like, everybody deserves financial literacy. And I feel that we don't do enough to educate folks from very, very early days about that. That in general, in the ecosystem is missing, like from a school-wide education system. And it gets even more, I feel it very intensely in venture because to Aiden's point earlier, people feel like it's the story of just money raining on your head. And it's, it's just not a lot of people. I think there's a lot to unpack here. And I think we're mixing a couple things together. First of all, a venture capitalist firm is to manage their LPs money. We, did, we have a fiduciary duty. 
This is not a game. We're not in Vegas. We're not taking chances. It is very important to be diversified. In fact, is one of the core tenets of Felicis to be as diversified and as uncorrelated as possible because there are high returns expected from us and LPs are not like taking a gamble with us. You know, they, they want to come into Felicis because they want to know that we have a unique strategy that is as much risk management. And I think every professional VC firm it's their job to risk manage and make sure that the capital is invested wisely. So let, let me clarify that uh, first. The second thing is, I think it's very important to unpack, you know, the, the biggest difference is venture capitalists are, you know, backing founders, but they're also backing companies. I think only for the first round or earliest rounds of companies, the founders that have done it before are very experienced, are at an advantage because people can look at that and say, you know, this founder was a great operator, has scaled, has proven, so they're going to get a premium. I think those founders have earned that. So, but, you know, the, the important thing to mention is, you know, at later rounds, now it's all about the performance and, you know, the, the actual signal of the company as much as the founder. So, you know, a great founder can start on a great round and maybe, you know, one or two initial rounds. But as we get later into the company's tenure, people are going to start looking for traction and execution. Um, and, you know, the, the point is there, like, of course, the companies that do well are going to have a lot more capital thrown to them because that was my whole earlier point that, yes, how much, however we wish for and whatever we want, the only reality matters. And like, I wish there would be more great companies getting created. Uh, but the reality is, it's kind of like gravity, like whatever the great companies, they're going to attract more of the capital. And then, you know, some other companies will obviously have more challenges with respect to scouts and angel investing. That's already happening. I mean, a lot of founders that I know, I mean, I, much more so than when I started. I mean, I don't know a single founder that is not doing some form of angel investing. And if they don't have capital, they're doing it like through advisory shares. And a lot of venture funds also like take their founders capital, um, regardless of the size of the fund. I don't know a single venture fund that does not honor and help their founders in some ways. Uh, and they even have parallel vehicles to do that. So a lot of it is, this is already happening so I'm not sure it's like a zero sum that it's not happening. It is happening. And then the last thing is, look, um, there are so many more things that we can do. You know, I think one of the things that I always ask my founders and hold truth for myself and for our firm, you cannot be world-class and excellent in something trying to do 10 things at once, right? I mean, the, the job of a founder is to make their company successful. Of course, they're going to have most of their eggs in that one basket. They're running that company. It's kind of like, going to a quarterback and like, oh, like, do you want to diversify? Do you also want to play different positions? They have one, they have one goal is to be the best quarterback or to be the best running back or whatever, the best tennis player. So obviously, you know, one of the areas that is really critical is there is opportunity for the founders to take a little bit of money off the table to help them take more calculated risk and, you know, scaling of the company that's something that we've always been supportive. And I think that's been kind of a trend uh, that is a lot more there than, than it, it's yeah. probably been there 10, 14 years ago. And again, unfortunately, my tenure runs out at 14 years. Uh, Beezer, yeah. you can comment beyond it. You have a lot more experience. <laughs> uh, but in general, I think there is a positive trend in the industry. So that's what I would say from where I am. Perhaps uh, to gear towards our, you know, our last few minutes here, I, I, why don't you talk a little bit about that why you thought the perfect strategy for Felicis is a $300 million uh, fund. You, you could be doing lots of different types of things. You can go, you know, a billion dollar series like Andreessen. You could go, you could have tried something like YC, you know, when, when they were coming up. How, how did you think about this is the perfect strategy for you? And maybe you can close also by mentioning the, the, the mental health work you guys are doing. Yeah, I mean, very quickly, um, this is probably the hardest thing for us. We spend a lot of sleepless nights thinking about fund size, our strategy is a lot more complex than just the fund size. Beezer knows this. Uh, it's a very, very hard thing because uh, there are two forces that are acting on it. The larger the number gets, you know, it's just gravity. It, it becomes so much harder to, to generate the returns that we aspire to. And, you know, the, the return distribution starts getting narrower uh, and much more focused. On the other hand, you know, I'm really grateful that we have been able to scale our firm 
you know, th- there was a concept that I like to use internally that we call the aperture, meaning that, you know, we don't really think about absolute stages as much, but, you know, we talked about the world's best companies and the best founders. We want, we need, we just need to have, you know, more opportunities and more chances to make that happen and say yes. And, you know, the smaller the fund size, the more limited you are. Like, we don't want to just say, oh, we can only say yes to great companies only when they're in C stage. We want to be able to back them at more stages than that. Like, that doesn't mean that we're all of a sudden become a, you know, growth fund. You know, we obviously still aspire and aim to invest in them early. It's just the fact that sometimes timing just doesn't work out. And our job is to maximize the probability of being in great companies and then that needs to be balanced with what is the largest fund that we feel that we can still generate great returns. And it's a kind of uh, a fact, you know, factor of that. And we do a lot of modeling in terms of what we think and how many different ways we can achieve success. So there are a lot of careful work and thought goes into that. And lastly, in terms of mental health, you know, one thing that I, I want to add, you know, we've kind of done a survey uh, and research for two years before we came out with our founder pledge. What was amazing is that, you know, how difficult it is it for founders to talk about hard things. You know, whenever you ask founders, like how everything is going, everything is going up and to the right. I think there is so much pressure in Silicon Valley, not just on founders, also on GPs and Beezer knows on LPs to say everything is going great. Um, nobody wants to talk about the things that are not working. Nobody wants to talk about the things that are stressful. And so one thing that we're seeing is that, you know, there is a lot of coaching that needs to go in. And when you look at professional sports, you know, I love sports. Um, a lot of professional athletes have multiple coaches, not just one main coach, but they have coaches that specialize in certain functions, even mental aspect of it. Um, but that has never existed for founders. And I think founders are athletes too. And I think this is a really important aspect. And I think it's something that when you ask the crystal ball in five years from now, I think you're going to see it's probably going to be much more common that they're going to get help in terms of leadership development and leadership scaling, because it's a really critical, critical thing for the company to not just grow fast, but to do so in a healthy way, in a scalable way that doesn't end up then taking the whole company down. And when we see one of these, you know, some of these, you know, uh, things uh, in the press, it's our job to be proactive about it and not reactive about it. That's a perfect place to wrap. My guests today have been Aiden Senkit and Beezer Clarkson. Aiden, Beezer, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you. It's been great to be here. Thanks, Beezer. Thank you. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst. 